Happy Thursday, everyone. Caitlin cutting in at the beginning here just to let everyone know that we have some group live tweets coming up. Mandy and I will be watching the last three episodes and doing live commentary on Twitter. We will also have a rabbit room set up where everyone can join in and watch together. You do need to have an account with Rabbit before joining one of their rooms. So if you want to watch with us, please make sure you are all ready to go before the following dates. Episode 6 on February 17th, Episode 7 on February 24th, and Episode 8 on March 3rd. And those will all be starting at 8pm EST and 5pm PST. And now, into Episode 3. where we recap and discuss every episode of the television show Spoiler Free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I'm talking about movies on my other podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about A Discovery of Witches, I'm podcasting about The Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. Each week, we'll recap the episode spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend, Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here, but don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 3 was directed by Alice Troughton and written by Kate Brooke. So we have a new director this week, but the same writer as the first two episodes. And we had talked last episode a little bit about whether or not the cold open was normal, and mm -hmm. I noted in this episode, there was no cold open. We got the title cards, dove straight into Matthew and his voiceover. Yes. I don't know if it, if we get any more cold opens though. Like I, I, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. I think, I think it's just interesting because it was done so well in episode two with introducing Juliet as part of a story that obviously has to do with Matthew, but is completely separate from the main storyline. Yeah. So I want to know if they continue to do that, if there are other threads that they're going to pull on like that as we go through the season. Yes. And that's one of the reasons I like this episode so much, that it does focus so much on just Matthew and Diana and the main story. Oh, yeah. This is absolutely Matthew and Diana's episode. Yeah. And it's one of my favorites, if not my actual favorite. Hard to say. But it is a very good episode of television. It is. It absolutely is. All right, so we start off in, I, I think I originally had written the morning after, but there's actually nothing to say that more time hasn't passed. So it's a morning, and we see Matthew checking out the library, and Diana, I just forgot her name for a second there, geez. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and Diana getting ready, and then she walks out of her college and Matthew is waiting for her, and it's all very nice. And she's wearing a coat that could be blue, but could be gray. I like to think of it as a blue-gray, so it technically counts as blue. Okay. And Matthew's coat is also a dark navy blue. Yeah, I'd actually, the first time I watched, I don't think I noticed how much blue Matthew wears also, but he does wear quite a bit. It's just much darker than Diana's blue. Yeah, it's interesting because in the book, she wore white and black 
essentially just white and black. And he wore a lot of gray and a lot of green. And so for them to both be wearing blue in the show is an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. I like it. And I honestly thought that this was like the first time we see Diana's hair not looking like she just threw it up into a ponytail and went about her day. I, I believe you're right. It absolutely is. I noticed it for sure. I was like, oh, her hair is like nicely pulled back. It's not just wispy everywhere. Yeah. And I like to think that she thought she might see Matthew that day. So she paid a little bit more attention to herself. I really like that thought, but I'm not sure that's the case because did you see her hair when they have their actual date later on? You know, honestly, there's no good shot of it. It's like you get a shot sort of of the back of her neck at one point and I was trying to see what she did with her hair then, but I have absolutely no idea what she did with her hair during that dinner. Okay. It, it just felt very, very all over the place like everything else, you know, just kind of not brushed, but hastily thrown up into some semblance of a ponytail. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being too judgy. It's entirely possible. I don't know. I honestly, I felt like I couldn't tell how it was up. It just was up. Mm-hmm. One of those magical TV updos. Yes. Magical. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and then we get Jillian being a bigot. Oh, Jillian. This, I think, is my least favorite Jillian scene that we've ever had. And that's saying a lot. Yeah, it's it's not great with the whole trying to excuse her actions and then defending Peter Knox. Yeah, no, absolutely. She assumes that Peter's a good man just by virtue of being on the congregation. And I think that says a lot about Jillian and it says a lot about how the congregation is viewed by, at least by witches. Because at this yeah. point, we don't know of anybody on the congregation who's not a witch. And also, I think she assumes that he's a good man because he's a witch. Yes, I think you're right about that. Absolutely. Which is just sigh. I guess it's very Jillian. It's very show Jillian for sure. Yeah. God, it's so painful. Just because you want to slap her around, shake her a little bit, tell her to stop. When she calls Matthew that, like, why would you refer to any person that way? It's just stupid. I hate it. It is absolutely stupid, but I do love that it spurs Diana to be like, screw you, I'm going to go spend the day with him now. Yeah, this is true. And as a classic example of people bringing about the exact outcome they did not want through their own attempt at manipulation. Yeah. I have to wonder how Matthew feels about it, though, because the only reason she ends up going with Matthew in that moment is literally to say, screw you to Jillian. Mm, I think she was going to say yes. Maybe a little bit more reservedly. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. So then we get to go to Matthew's house, the old lodge. Which is very large and has a peacock in the yard. It does. Inexplicably, there's a peacock in the yard. (laughs) Why? Where? What? Apparently peacocks just roam wild in England. I have my doubts about that. Well, I do too, but I mean, let's just go with it, right? (laughs) Okay, yep, sure. I guess my problem with with the peacock is that, you know, we see him unlocking the gate and the house looks dark and closed up, which means, but like, if there's a peacock, somebody must be taking care of this peacock. So, I don't know, it just seems really out of the blue. It was absolutely out of the blue. It was a strange shot. For sure, especially for the the camera to call so much attention to it and linger before moving on. It was a very nice looking peacock. 
peacocks are beautiful and they're blue so there we go oh that's a good point we just needed some blue in in matthew's house yeah and then when we're in the house we get some this is probably some of my favorite like exposition in the show because it feels very natural that Diana would start asking a billion questions and Matthew would be answering them very reluctantly the way that he is. Mm-hmm. And we learn that he has a sister named Louisa and that his father or his stepfather, whatever, it's fine, it has died some time ago. And we learn that his name is Philippe. And we just learn more about Matthew and his family and his, oh, that he's French and his real name is de Clermont. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I just really like this exposition. I think they did a good job with it. Yeah, and we're really pushing the familial hierarchy of vampire families. Mm-hmm. Um, because later we do get more of Gerbert and Juliet and father. And here Matthew calls the woman who sired him mother, her husband, father slash stepfather. You know, we've got sister Louisa. So this, they're definitely showing us that there's a family system here which I really like because that is so very different than what you usually see in vampire lore. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I don't think it comes up in the show at all, but I love how they are showing that vampires aren't these lonely, immortal beings, you know, looking for... Redemption? Redemption or or whatever. This is not Angel, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) That they have these large families... And I know in the second book, they talk about it a lot, or that Diana always just assumed or thought of Matthew as being this loner, but he's got this huge sprawling family because if you make one vampire, you've got that vampire forever. Right. So even if you only make one every five years, that's that's a big family. That's still a big family. Absolutely. So I, I like how that is very different than any other vampire lore that I've personally read or seen. Yeah, the closest, I think, is, uh, of course, the comparison to Twilight, like we continue to do every episode, because that's obviously fairly family based, but it is still different, because it's more chosen family, that's more chosen family instead of like sired family. I mean, I know, some of it was by virtue of they were with the people who turned them, but some of them were just absolutely chosen. And this family structure is more about they are related by blood because blood is what turns you into a vampire. Yeah. And even the books go into it a bit more also. But like you see sometimes Matthew being like, well, I guess they're my sibling. So I care about them and I'm loyal to them. But they're also assholes. Yeah. And that's just a very family thing. Like I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we move on to Satu at the congregation back in Venice. And this is the least creepy that we've ever seen Satu. I think she speaks kind of normally. She doesn't have that weird creepy like stilt to her voice when she's talking to the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And she's actually not wearing black in this scene. It's very shocking. You know, I never thought about that before, but maybe that's why her jacket bothered me. Because it's, it's a nice jacket. I'd probably buy that jacket for myself. But I hated it on her, probably because it wasn't creepy looking. Yeah, there was nothing creepy about her in this scene, even when she started doing magic. But yeah, it was it was just it was different. And I don't know if it's because she was basically by herself in these scenes. So she wasn't really interacting with other people. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. 
I think this is the first time we've seen her acting without Peter Knox directing her. Oh, that is absolutely true. And I'm not at all trying to say that I think Setu is a good person without Peter Knox, but... She's a different person. Yeah, but it's, it's the first time we see her doing her own thing. Right. And we get some more exposition... But again, it didn't bother me at all. I thought it was well done because we learn exactly what the congregation is, you know, that there's the witches, demons, and vampires, and they all meet up on this island called Isola de la Stella, or the Isle of Stars. I am so impressed that you found that. (laughs) Me too, because it was bothering the heck out of me last (laughs) night. And yeah, we just learned some more about the congregation and that they have their own or that each species creature has their own, like, archives, I guess, mm-hmm. or area on the island where they can keep historical things. And and it's just, it was some good exposition, which we've seen the show do boring exposition. So it's nice to get some interesting exposition. Yeah, I was actually surprised at how much information we got in what was seemingly a throwaway line. You yeah. know, it's not like they did this montage showing us uh, there are demons over here and there are vampires over here and there's all these things going on. It was just as the caretaker is walking Satsu down the hall, he just says, oh, yeah, the demons are over there and the vampires are over here and here's the witch's archive. And that's all we need yeah. to know that, wow, the congregation is so much bigger than we thought it was. Yeah, because this is the first we've heard about it being more than just witches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was done really, really well. And also, I just like all the shooting that they did in Venice. It's really pretty. I like the the water taxis that always take them out to the island. Yeah. And then we're back at the old lodge with Matthew and Diana. And Diana's, of course, reading some old books. Of course. What else would she be doing? And Matthew's staring at Diana, because that's what he does. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. But again, because Matthew Good is such a good actor... He's he's not just like staring at her. You can see him like figuring things out as he looks at her. And it's it's really well done, I thought. Oh, yeah. The cogs are definitely turning in his head while he looks at her. Yeah. And then we have them talk about alchemy. And I really like the line. I think it's from Diana about how she, she or no, maybe it's maybe it was Matthew. Shoot. I don't remember. One of them says that it's magic with science or science with magic. And they've never really been able to figure it out. And Diana says that that's one of the reasons she's drawn to it. And I like this line because it really shows that Diana isn't necessarily as against magic as she, you know, when she got really angry at Sarah in that first episode. And just that she has more interest in learning about magic in a way that she can. Yeah, I, I think there's a difference between learning about magic and learning to do magic for Diana. Yeah. And I know in the in the show, I would say that they put more of an emphasis on Diana not being able to do much magic and having that be why she's kind of against it. Mm -hmm. So I like this idea that it seeps into other areas in her life where it doesn't rely on her being able to do magic in order to learn about it. Right. Uh, One thing that I really liked about this scene was the meticulous care that Diana was taking with the books that were Matthew's. Yeah, Because the way they set up the shot, she was sitting at the desk and she had all these old books piled up around her and she had the manuscript she was reading propped up between them so that it wouldn't lay flat like it was on one of the cradles at the bod. Yeah. And I just thought that was such neat attention to detail that I wouldn't expect. But when I saw it, I loved it. 
And then Matthew uses that same, like, meticulousness of Diana's and care of hers to demonstrate how her magic does work. Yes, because he had to threaten the books with wine. Don't threaten the books, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, Diana freaks out. Surprised she didn't call the witch wind there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Get the hell out of my library. Kind of. Yeah. But then we have Matthew figure out that the little magic Diana does use responds to her need for things. Mm-hmm. She needed to keep the book safe. Right. And she needed Ashmole 782 for her research, which is why it came to her. Yes. Although they do discuss there being more to it than that. Right. And then we get M scrying. And I love the special effects here. And I so very seldom love the special effects in this show. So I wanted to say that. It is beautiful. I'm not entirely sure what's happening. Because, I mean, I know that scrying is somehow seeing into the future using a reflective surface. And she's using water for that. But she's also using smoke and she's using essential oils. And we see the smoke move in the water which is what is very very beautiful but they don't actually show us any of the things that M sees. we just get told what M sees, and we just get these beautiful swirling smoky water and it just it it was confusing to me it didn't bother me i like i see what you're saying but i think it would have been i don't think it would have worked as well if they like flashed to other scenes maybe maybe i don't know i think that they could have i think they could have done more to show like the outline of a person in the smoke or something okay that's fair yeah that they could have done but i do agree it was absolutely beautiful it just it was confusing to me and i don't think i would have understood what was happening if m hadn't specifically told us and we meet the most important character in the whole show in this scene oh tabitha tabitha i love that cat i love all cats so yeah i mean that was just gonna happen for me anyway that's that's a good point. And then we're back to Diana and Matthew. I should say, actually, just going back to M and Sarah quickly, I think this is where M mentions that she sees a man following Diana, and it's not a witch. Yes. So then we're back to Matthew and Diana outside of the house. And I just really like Matthew's lines here about how witch power is in her blood. And he talks about how it's a part of who she is and she shouldn't deny it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just really, it's a really nice scene. And when he talks about her blonde hair and her blue eyes and she gives him that smile, it's very nice. (laughs) You just like it when they look at each other and smile. They look at each other very well. They do. Absolutely. Um, I, I like this scene because this is where we finally acknowledge that... Diana, at least, I don't I don't know about everybody else. It's unclear to me, for, both from the show and the book, on if this is just a Diana thing or if this is an every witch thing. Right. Um, but Diana can feel it when creatures look at her. And she spe- specifically talks about in this scene, it feels like ice under her skin when a vampire looks at her. Mm-hmm. And so Matthew is using that as an example of how she uses witch power all the time. And that is part of how it is innately in her and I think that is a really nice callback to the book here because that yeah. is that's actually a, a rather large part, at least of the first book, of how she always knows when someone is watching her and what species is watching her because she can feel it when their eyes touch her. Yeah. Yeah. They cut out all the, the other species or they didn't talk about how she can feel the other species looking at her also. But I, I am glad they kept that in. Mm-hmm. And then Diana sort of 
she almost like drags Matthew's origin story out of him here. As he is very reluctant to say anything. But then it does come out that he was born around the year 500. Making him over 1500 years old. And that he was reborn as a vampire around his 37th birthday. And you can you can just see right away that Dan is like 1500. Yes, I can ask you all the questions. Right. Like this is the perfect man for a historian. Yeah. I think she says the things you must have seen and then Matthew's immediately like, "Yeah, and done. Let's not talk about it." Yeah, that's not foreshadowing <laughs> anything at all. Yeah. So, from that dire warning, we immediately cut to a very bright and cheerful young woman who is drawing mm-hmm. the image that Diana saw from Ashmal 782. Uh, at this point, we don't know who she is, but the song playing in the background is a song called Demons by Imagine Dragons. Yeah. So I think they're kind of really hitting that nail over the head that this is a demon. <laughs> I, you know, I enjoyed the song and the choice, but it is a little bit, like, coupled with the other song in this episode, it's a little, it's a little too literal. Yeah, I think they could have done with some subtlety. It's a good song. It is absolutely a good song, but it is not subtle at all. So then we follow her home. We don't actually learn her name. Do we learn that she's Sophie in this episode at all? I don't think we do, actually. I know we get Agatha's name and we get Nat's name. I don't actually think we get Sophie's name, but spoiler alert, her name is Sophie. (laughs) So we follow her home and she talks to her boyfriend slash husband. We're not sure which. And he is also a demon, has set up chat room for demons to communicate on the internet and there's a quick throwaway line about how he's discovered that there were some demons who were born to humans and spent most of their life just thinking they were freaks because they didn't understand what they were mm-hmm. which i think is a pretty significant bit of creature evolution origin what is what's the word that i'm looking for characteristics lore lore let's go with lore i don't know i don't know either uh but it does bring up an interesting question of whether or not demons are their own species because they are born to humans or they can be born to humans and Mm -hmm. that is something that our friend dr anya found fascinating and really wanted to talk about so let's go over to the lab and hear what she has to say about it So my main takeaway from this episode is that demons can be born to humans. And, you know, this really throws a wrench into the idea of creatures as separate species. Because in biology, we think of, like, by definition, a species is sort of like a group of organisms that can breed within each other and only within each other you know like a cat doesn't give birth to a dog a bear doesn't give birth to a cow and so that's like really one of the defining characteristics between like what makes something a species versus what is just a trait or what we might call like a phenotype or a morph you know so like a brown dog can give birth to a white dog and that's what makes brown dogs and white dogs not different species right Um, And so going back to Darwin, Matthew's good friend, he would have called this uh, true breeding in On the Origins of Species. And so the fact that, you know, demons and humans and witches are not necessarily true breeding, it was like 
One of my problems with the book, I mean, more so the language surrounding it, but it does make me really curious about where the books and the series is going as far as like the ultimate conclusion. Right. No comment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think you're supposed to because the the same questions that you're having now are the same questions that, that Matthew brings up. And as a book reader, I really appreciated the sort of like shout out to um, book Matthew's like weird wolf stuff. I think it's great that the TV show didn't include it because that was actually like another one of my complaints about the book and, and sort of like TV shows and books in general is that you know, scientists don't have appropriately narrow expertises. They're sort of like, oh, you can be like a physicist and a biologist and a chemist. And so in the book, Matthew is both a geneticist and an expert in like wolf behavior and ecology. And those are like, for the most part, pretty separate disciplines. And no one would really be that good at both of them. I mean, he's been alive a long time, so you can kind of explain it that way. Mm-hmm. He's had a lot of time to master different things. Um, but both modern ecology and modern genetics haven't really been around that long. So I also really liked the twist on vampire lore here, that they're not undead exactly. They're not just sort of like mystically animated corpses. They're more like differently alive. Um, So Matthew talks about how they have really efficient energy use, um, and it's not that they don't breathe or their hearts don't beat, it's just that their hearts don't need to beat very often, and so that's why they don't need to breathe that much either, Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, don't have to oxygenate the blood as much. Just to bring this sort of all around, I've always wondered how much of that is influenced by Twilight, because I think pre-Twilight people didn't mess with vampires that often. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'd just be. No, that's true. And because like Stephanie Meyer did, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think she was the first person to try and come up with a genetic explanation for vampires. And so I believe in the Twilight universe, vampires have an extra chromosome or something. Oh my God. I thought that was these books. No, I think that's Twilight. Because there is. Is that also in here? Maybe that's not in the first book. There is chromosome discussion in these books, but I forget I forget exactly what it was. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in Twilight. Yeah, so in Twilight, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes and vampires have 25 pairs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to to keep an eye on that as we go forward. I'm not rereading Twilight, but I uh <laughs> maybe I'll spend some time on Wikipedia. And then finally, um, in this episode, they talk about the four original witch clans, which goes back to um, what we were talking about last episode about the mitochondrial DNA being passed down by the maternal lineage. And so it makes sense that if a lot of the witch markers were on the mitochondrial genome, that you would be able to analyze them and narrow it down to, like, the four original clans. I'm liking how much of the science does appear to be making sense from from your end. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, the science is actually pretty well done. Most of my problems with the book were not with the science itself. It was more with, like, the specific language around some of the science. Right. 
um, where, like, I felt like if she had just gotten a biologist to kind of, like, read through it and just, like, clean up the dialogue a little bit, it could have been so much better. And especially, you know, given how much she clearly, you know, cares about different disciplines and, like, history and and is, like, super detail-oriented along that line. I feel like it made... She could have easily just, like, found an expert at her university. I mean, I don't know, maybe as a professor, you like don't want to share your vampire fiction book with your coworkers from other departments and be like, can you read this and tell me if this makes sense? <laughs> that would be an interesting lunch hour. Yeah, so again, this episode didn't add a whole lot to the science and world building, but we get the hint that at least demons aren't species in the way that we're used to thinking about them. And we did find out about the four original witch clans, so that's something to keep an eye on. It it might become important later on, since we do keep hearing so much about the bishops and, and Diana's ancestors. All right. So before we say goodbye this week, is there anything else about this episode that you just really need to get off your chest? So one of my favorite things about the book that I think the show also does really well is showing how clearly Diana is driven by her intellectual curiosity, her growing interest in the Ashmole manuscript and in Matthew. It all totally makes sense based on her characterization as a historian and an academic. And I just like all of the, you know, maybe like bad or unwise decisions that she makes, I totally buy them. And, and I'm just like starting to really love Diana and appreciate her. And again, uh, like I mentioned last episode, in this episode, we again have Matthew and Diana sort of taking turns um, pursuing each other. And I think it's, it's really building up the romance in a good way. So we don't need to discuss this here, but I would love to hear your thoughts on vampirism as a sex metaphor, because I feel like that's made really explicit in this episode. Sort of like the whole idea of like the there being a temptation to feed and then having to resist that and then like ultimately either like giving in or not. I think that idea is like really emphasized a lot in in the show and in Twilight much more than Buffy and those are like really the only three vampire universes that I'm familiar with. And and yeah, and I guess just on Buffy, I felt like most of her her vampire romances were not really about bloodlust itself in the same way that Twilight and now A Discovery of Witches is like, I don't know, something about like the bloodlust of vampirism feels much more central to the romance here. And so yeah, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts about that. Do you want them now? Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. We can talk about it now. (laughs) Well, I'm not really prepared to, but yeah, my general thoughts is even if an author doesn't intend for it to come across as a sex metaphor the original well not the original but like dracula was really written as kind of a big part of that was a sex metaphor so a lot of the times if you just stick to the lore it happens whether or not you want it to yeah no i mean and i definitely think the sex metaphor is there in buffy it's just like less central yeah it's yeah it's like less emphasized I mean, but there is, in Buffy, there is too, like, an element of sort of, like, danger and wrongness in the way that, like, you know, his, traditionally 
sex has also been treated as like a dangerous and wrong thing. And so I think there's like something that's kind of encoded in us societally to yeah to like think about sex that way as much as we try not to. I think a lot of this will come up in later episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about Discovery of Witches is it's one of the very few vampire fictions that just will will talk about sex explicitly. Mm-hmm. So it it loses some of the metaphor there because it doesn't need it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely see that. So like I I you get the metaphor in early episodes, but I think it more is just about the bringing together of them. And metaphor-wise, I think the show or the book concentrates a lot more on alchemy and how yeah. the me- and the metaphors in that and how they can relate to the characters. That's a really good point. Sorry, I've also I was just kind of like sitting here and thinking about how it's always like a male vampire and a female human and how like what that says about gender relations and like who's tempted. Yeah. And like <laughs> the different burdens that the the different sexes bear for like having to resist sex traditionally. Not always though, because in Buffy we got Darla siring Angel. No, that's true. And like Buffy just had so much time that they were able to, I think, come at it from a lot of different angles. But when you think about like Buffy definitely started with like her and Angel. Oh yeah. Um I, I can't stop thinking about an Angel a, a Buffy quote now listening to you talk about the metaphor and how it later is not a metaphor anymore. And I just I can hear Giles saying the subtext is rapidly becoming text. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's all I can hear. So <laughs> That's such a great quote. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for stopping my lap. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. So, yeah, that was an interesting conversation from Dr. Anya. And I love that she brought up the idea of vampirism as a sexual metaphor. And I think we're still a little bit too early in the season to give that the attention that it deserves. And so... Moving forward, we're going to keep an eye on that and see kind of how the show develops that metaphor, um, because I think there is something to it. I just don't think we have enough yet at this point in episode three to really dive into it. Although I do think later on in the episode is where it, for, it really it really starts showing up. Yeah. I mean, well, it did. It even started a little bit in, in the last episode where, as you quoted your friend from Tumblr, yes. where the, the kiss on the wrist was their first sex scene and i think that definitely combines vampirism with with the idea of sex because the wrist is so vulnerable it's definitely a point of blood wrists are highly associated with blood so it's Mm -hmm. it's there it's definitely we're building that metaphor i think i just don't know that we can give it the proper space that it needs yet right but getting back into the show here we then get um, Sarah and M calling Diana to admonish her for spending time with a vampire. Can we just take a minute to acknowledge how amazing Alex Kingston is when she's doing super pissed? Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> I mean, her voice, her facial expressions, like everything about it. She's just got this anger slash annoyance thing that like when you hear it, you want to just sit down and do what she says. He could feed off you. Take your memories. I'm sure that's not true. That's what they do, Diana. 
He could have fed off you already. Seen everything you saw when you opened that book. You wouldn't remember. Yeah, she's she's very good at that. Like, it, it's very obviously family angry at family. Yes. Um, and then this is also the scene where we learn that uh, Diana's mom, Rebecca, used to tell her stories about someone called the Shadow Prince. Mm-hmm. And M is the one who brings this up. And she wonders aloud if Matthew might be the Shadow Prince of the stories. I do also immediately love how Sarah's like, you two are putting two and two together and getting five. <laughs> that made me like, laugh. <laughs> it's a really good scene. And I also also love, it shows a lot of their family dynamic because even like as soon as they pick up or as soon as they yell or at Diana, Diana's immediately like, was M spying on me again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think that Sarah and M are such good counterpoints to each other. They're... They're so opposite that I think they ground each other. Yeah. And and Diana is just so used to that, that, that she gets the balance from being, from having been raised by both of them, essentially. And we yeah. definitely see that in, in these conversations. And I like this look into what it was like growing up in a witch household. Was them spying on me again. Can you imagine yeah. being a no. teenager in a house with a woman who had the ability to do that? No. No. I would lose my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get Marcus, who I always love. I never would have known that about you. <laughs> so it turns out that we learned that Matthew is very, very super protective. And while he has gone away to a conference, that he has asked Marcus to watch over Diana. So Diana's going to take advantage of the situation and ask Marcus what Matthew might like to eat. Because as we forgot to mention earlier, Diana asked Matthew over for dinner. And I believe this is the scene where Diana is wearing a blue shirt, a blue scarf, and a blue jacket. And they're all slightly different shades of blue. I don't think I actually noticed that. I was too busy enjoying each other, like trying to take advantage of each other. Because Diana's like, well, if you have to be here, I'm going to get information from you. And Marcus is like, well, if you want information from me, then you have to give me blood. Which doesn't quite feel like a fair trade. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if it's a vampire, you know? Right. Did you need a snack? What? Right. Yep. Um, This is also where Marcus brings up the idea that there are four witch clans. And he kind of dangles that tidbit over Diana and says, wouldn't you like to know which one the bishops are descended from? Yeah. I wish we got more about the clans in the show. Because it's it's very interesting in the book. I wonder if they'll do more with that in season two. Because we just feel like we learned so much more about witchcraft in book two. This is true. So maybe. 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 And then... I don't think we actually get, like, Diana giving Marcus an answer about the blood. We just cut to Satu. Back to Satu at the congregation, who is doing her own research. She's looking up all of the bishops in the congregation archives. Uh, Particularly, she has Diana's file in her hands, which includes photographs of her parents' deaths, which are particularly gruesome. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a document that has results of early testing of her uh, aptitude as a witch, Um, which I really like the detail of. It specifically does say she has no aptitude, that she was unable to perform simple spells, and shows little promise of developing into a witch of significant power. Um, That assessment was signed by Peter Knox. So it's kind of interesting that Peter Knox had gone through this level of testing with Diana, and now he's so, what's the word? So obsessed with Diana and her power now. And you know, getting Jillian to believe that Diana's been using magic this whole time when clearly there was a point that Peter didn't believe that she could do magic at all. 
Yeah, it really shows a another side of how manipulative Peter Knox is. Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, we also see some very heavily redacted documents that Satu starts to reveal with her magic when she is very rudely interrupted by Domenico, a vampire who should not be in the witch archives. Um, he swipes the assessment and starts to read it, and Satu wipes it magically, but not before he sees that it's about a, a witch named Diana Bishop, and he wonders aloud who that is. I hate this scene. Not like, not that it's a bad scene, but like it makes me hate Domenico, because what are you doing there? Why did you come in? What, what, what? Oh yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense so that Domenico is there. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, how did he know what Satu was doing? Like, him not even knowing who Diana is means there's no reason for him to be there at all. Like, why does he care? Yeah. And, like, why was he on the island? There, the congregation's not in session. Like, Satu's there because she's new and was, like, maybe looking for something in particular. But what is he doing there? Why did he go into the witch's archives? How did he even know she was... Well, maybe he smelled her, but, like, what? Yeah, so when he does take the information back to Gerber, he says that he learned from a witch that Matthew was harassing a witch. And it's unclear to me if he heard from a witch and that's what led him to the congregation to look for information and that's why he went to the witch's archive, or if he's talking about Satu being the witch who told him. Like, did Satu tell him who Diana Bishop was? And that's how he knows that Matthew is harassing a witch? Like, that whole thread is really confusing and doesn't make sense, the way they've set it up. I guess I can see where maybe to get him to leave her alone, when he asked who Diana Bishop was, he she said something like, a witch that a vampire is stalking or whatever. Yeah. But that's In order still to, like, turn it back on them. I don't know. Yeah, but that still doesn't explain why Domenico was even there. No, What made him go into the witch archives and interrupt Satu? No idea. I'd really like the answer to that. <laughs> I will say, we're starting to see in this episode that they've given Domenico a personality, which he didn't really have in the book. I think he was just sort of a nameless background vampire. Yeah. Or not nameless, personality-less. And I, I like that he's sort of being shown as a sneaky, manipulative, out-for-himself mm-hmm. person. I Not that that's good. I just like how they've written him here. Right. They've taken a lot of characters and given them much more depth than they had in the book, which I like. Yeah. And then we're back in the lab. And Matthew is possessive. Which we haven't really seen too much of. No, I guess we haven't seen him be possessive. We've seen him order people around. Yeah. They've toned it down a lot from the book. Oh, absolutely. But basically, Miriam is about to take Diana's blood and Matthew barges in and is like, no, 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 no vampires taking her blood except me. And in a way, I they then end the scene with like a little drop of Diana's blood coming out of where the needle was in her arm. Mm-hmm. And you can see in the background, like, it's a really nicely framed shot where it focuses on the blood and then the focus shifts to Marcus and Miriam in the background. Mm -hmm. And you see them react to even that little tiny drop. So they are also kind of justifying Matthew's possessiveness there. Right. Yeah, they definitely looked uncomfortable and, like, they were having to hold themselves back. Yeah. It was just a very well done shot. And it is one of the only, or I guess... It is the most unreasonable we've seen Matthew be so far in regards to Diana. With Diana being there, yes. 
I guess I, f- I feel like it. some of the conversation he had with Hamish that was surrounding Diana, he was super possessive and protective over her in that conversation. Oh, okay. Yes, but she wasn't fair. there, so maybe it doesn't count. That's fair. And then we go back to Venice. Uh, Domenico goes to see Gerbert. Um, this is where he's learned at this point that Matthew is harassing a witch in Oxford, so he goes to tell Gerbert on Matthew. Domenico thinks that they should use this as an excuse to bring Matthew before the congregation, showing us that definitely there are people who do not like Matthew. We don't know why, but clearly they want to put him in his place. Mm-hmm. I just, I really like what they've done with, with Domenico yeah. in, in this. Yeah, but Gerbert is unsure, so he doesn't, you know, respond quickly to Domenico's manipulation here. So he goes to his oracle, which is a fucking witch head in a box. I remember the first time I saw this, and I was just like, what? What is happening? What is this? It's a head in a box. <laughs> yeah. And and the head in the box speaks in prophecy, apparently. She says, the witch with the blood of the lion and the wolf. I have no idea what that means. Like I said, the first time I saw this head, I was like, what the heck? This was not in the book. But I was looking into it, and of course, Gerberto Orlac was a real person. Mm-hmm. He was a pope, which is messed up. When Wait, he was an actual like pope? He was an actual pope. I did not know that. He was Pope Sylvester II. Wow. And by all accounts, at least according to Wikipedia, because I'm not a historian, he was a pretty good pope. He was very forward thinking, very into math in a time when not many people were. And that sort of thing. But then he also had all these weird legends surrounding him, including that he owned a brazen head, which was like a metal automaton head that spoke to him. And he like consulted the way people consult a magic eight ball. I wonder if Deborah Harkness is is trying to tell us that she believes that Pope Sylvester II was a vampire. I hope so. Because it's kind of awesome, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading a bunch of these weird legends about him and like there's one like legends that he made weird deals with the devil and blah 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 and that he had a pact with a demon and all these weird things but my favorite one was that so wherever he's entombed the inscription on his tomb um you know what i'm not going to read the latin but basically they interpret that to mean that his bones will rattle in the tomb just before the death of a pope Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder if anybody's, like, ever set up a recording device to catch it. <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of creepy. Like, oh, a pope's about to die. <laughs> Setting the tape recorder down. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's he's an interesting dude in, in real life. And I like that she's taken him and made him this creepy vampire. And also sort of given an explanation of why the real dude might have been so forward thinking uh, during the Middle Ages when not many people were very forward thinking. Right. Yeah. I like it. Then we're back to the demons. And I love this scene for a lot of reasons. But one of them is when uh, we learn is Agatha Wilson, this, this woman, she walks into the house and like the door has been left open and she's bringing them groceries and you can tell that their lives are just kind of like a mess. Mm-hmm. And that, and I, I like this look into sort of everyday demons, not rich, very smart 
demons like Hamish, mm-hmm. but how it sort of plays out to them being so wrapped up in their genius or their creativity or whatever it is that they're not the best at living life. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty great characterization in, mm-hmm. in a very quick span of time. Yes, exactly. And also, I just love Agatha Wilson. She's fabulous. She is fabulous. Super fabulous. We do learn that she is on the congregation. So she is one of the demon representatives. We also learn that Nat's been told that he has to shut down his chat room. Apparently, it is against congregation rules for demons to even communicate with each other. Which makes me wonder how Sophie and Nat got married and how they can have like this family thing going on like is it only against the rules for like demons to meet new demons but if you're in a family it's okay i don't understand this bit either it's a tvism okay but agatha says that she supports the congregation and she supports the rules because demons apparently aren't good at doing things quietly which kind of makes sense when you look at the chaos that is just in this two person's house yeah. You know, the walls are covered. There are, you know, twinkle lights everywhere. There's clearly no food in the house. <laughs> you know, they just get so wrapped up in what they're doing. But it, it's definitely some new insight into the demon world that we hadn't previously known. Yes. And we do also learn that Sophie is pregnant. Sophie is pregnant, but baby hasn't moved yet or isn't moving currently. Something along those lines. Agatha asks if she's felt the baby move yet. And Sophie says... Oh, what does she say? I reckon she's lazy. I reckon she's lazy. <laughs> yep, that is exactly what she says. And then we move into a weird bit of foreshadowing, I think, where Sophie brings out the statue and shows mm-hmm. Agatha. And she believes that it is the statue of the White Queen from Alchemy. And Agatha says, no, I don't think that's who this is because it has a bow and arrow. And Sophie says, well, fine, it's like the White Queen. And then we learn that it's been passed down through her family for generations. Her father gave it to her and told her that she would know who to give it to when the time was right. Yeah. I I really like this scene as like a character scene for Sophie because she's just like, it'll be fine. It's going to get better. And they're like, how? And she's like, this statue. And they're like, what? Yeah. And she's and just it's... like, it is. It just is. Yeah. And Agatha tries to dismiss it and say, I don't think that's what you think it is. And she's like, fine. It's just, it's like it. Okay. She's so optimistic. Yeah. I I really like Sophie in the book. So I'm glad that they gave her, kept some of her oddness mm-hmm. in the show. Yeah. And, and then we cut to a quick scene between Matthew and Miriam standing in the middle of the street in Oxford. Yes. Where Miriam is wearing the best jacket ever. Miriam is always wearing the best jacket ever. Yeah. Ugh. I love this jacket so much. Anyways, uh, but really, I guess the important bit here is that she says she calls Matthew on craving Diana. Matthew basically ignores her. And then she says it's forbidden by the terms of the covenant. This is the verse we've heard of the covenant. Yeah, it's not even really tied back to the congregation in this conversation. But since Mm -hmm. we just cut from a scene about us learning that the congregation sets rules, then I think we can safely infer that the covenant is a congregation rule. Yeah. At this point. And and it's clearly there's some sort of rule. Not only are there rules about demons communicating with each other, there are rules uh, about vampires and witches together. Oh, it's possible Matthew says something like the congregation's not going to enforce a thousand year old rule. I don't remember if that's here. 
Oh, you know what? I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. He does say that. But either way, there's lots of rules. Yeah. And Matthew doesn't care. Yeah. He pretty much ignores Miriam and goes to dinner with Diana. And Diana is so nervous. It's adorable. It is adorable. But then Knox shows up and ruins everything. I he hate tries Nox. to ruin everything. This is true. He does try. I guess they don't. I actually really love how Matthew, like, zooms into the room mm-hmm. and growls at him. And then Peter Knox leaves. And then Matthew's just like, wine? <laughs> they don't address it at all. It's like, eh, who cares? Yep. Uh, this is also where we get a bit of exposition a bit of exposition dump about vampire physiology. We learn that their hearts do beat and they do breathe. It's just very, very, very slowly. Because they are efficient. Because they are efficient. And we learn that his senses are heightened. He can tell that they are eating, that he is eating deer, a specific kind of young deer from a specific place. Yeah, it's weird. I'm kind of glad that I don't know exactly where my food comes from. Yeah. She did serve him raw meat, right? She definitely did in the book. I mean, the meat that he was eating looked pretty raw. Like when he was saying, oh, this is a red stag from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think that was pretty raw. Um, And there were lots of nuts and berries and, and things like that. So I don't think he actually ate anything that was cooked on the table, which I know was how they did it in the book. Um, and they didn't specifically talk about these things in the show. It, they just showed us. But serving anybody raw meat is just ew. I'm sorry. Even if you're a vampire, you can pretend. <laughs> I actually, I like that they're given this one opportunity basically in the show to just sit around and have a normal conversation. Yeah. Well, their version of normal, I suppose. Right. They definitely seem to be very relaxed around one another in this moment. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of enjoying their time together. And they've they've uh, switched it up because Matthew's in blue and Diana's in white. I'm pretty sure she's in white. Uh, her top is white, yes. Yeah. She still has the blue necklace on. Yes. I guess she has to have some blue on her. Otherwise, she might die. <laughs> it's quite possible. We will never know. Yeah. But then Diana has to decide to be bold and completely take all of the relaxation out of the room by asking Matthew what she would taste like. Which just seems dumb. Like, Right? <laughs> Who would ask a vampire, what would I taste like? I, get, I, guess, I guess it goes to show how comfortable she feels with him mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, that she would just spit that out there. But I don't live in a world where there's definitely vampires and demons and witches and i would never ask a vampire that if i've met one you know right absolutely anyways it just seems a weird thing for her to ask yeah and he panics and freezes and just says never ask me that again and she kind of pushes him on it and she admits that she believes she's safe with him and Mm -hmm. then he grabs her and she kind of doesn't look super safe in that moment and then he does this really sexy thing where he like puts his lips to his forehead and he starts talking mm-hmm. and so he's like whispering but his breath is like on her face and in that moment she's clearly having some underpants feelings for matthew and so am <laughs> i like it's shifted very very quickly right yeah I, this is the bit where i think the the sexual metaphor of vampirism is really it's kicking in for sure yeah with the what would i taste like and then suddenly as you said underpants feelings yes um but Matthew shuts her down. 
She goes for the kiss, which is amazing because she's not waiting on any man's bullshit. She wants it, so she's going to take it. Yeah. But he doesn't kiss her back, and then he just leaves. That scene is so good because she's like, it's so slow, and she just like very slowly tiptoes up to him because their height difference is insane. Mm -hmm. Which I usually find a height difference adorable, but this is almost like impractical. (laughs) But she grabs him, she pulls him down to Mm -hmm. her, and it it has so much potential to be super sexy and amazing, and he just stands there. And then he thanks her for dinner and walks out the door. Yeah. All the while with a great look on his face. Like, you can tell he's just like, nope, 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 nope. But he's also really, really happy that she's into him. Yeah. And she's just devastated that he walks out the door. Yeah. (sighs) And then we go back to Venice. Then we go back to Venice. I I think you need to tell everybody what your note here is in the outline. Oh, (laughs) creepy vampire is creepy. Yes. Because... Gerber is bathing Juliet, the vampire who calls him father. He's bathing her. Nope, nope, nope. And it's really weird because she's clearly wearing false eyelashes in the bath, and that's super unrealistic in this television show about vampires, witches, and demons. So, like, in the book, it is very briefly mentioned that Matthew got taller when he was made a vampire, so maybe Juliet's lashes grew when she was made a vampire. Okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) We'll go with that. And then Gerber kisses Juliet and sends her off to go find a Matthew like he just punished her like threw her very forcefully and violently into a cell for finding a Matthew and killing him after having her way with him and now he's sending her off to do the same with his blessing yeah it's very easy to see how Juliet is completely messed up yeah absolutely because people have messed her up I did notice in the scene, though, that as she's going off in her water taxi, she is wearing red. And I'm wondering if, do you remember when we met Juliet before, was she wearing red? I, I don't think so. Okay. Because it just struck me, we talk so much about Diana wearing blue. I'm wondering if, if Juliet is wearing red to be a counterpoint to that blue. Right. I don't know. I know, I know she wears red again. And I... Oh, she generally, you know, in this scene and in almost every scene that she's in, looks fabulous. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, It's just the the color stood out to me because generally we tend to think of red and blue as being not specifically opposites, but counterparts to one another. Yeah. Just something to look out for as we continue. I I feel like she was wearing kind of a floral dress in the last episode. Hmm. I think she had red lipstick, though. Maybe. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. And then we cut back to the real morning after. <sighs> I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. You know, it's less it's less terrible than it was in the book, because in the book they talk about entrails. And I was like, I don't need to picture that. Jeez. Yeah. But um, we do still... I mean, we've already seen bloody photographs of her parents' death, because Satu had them in the congregation, and... Now, of course, they have been delivered to Diana's door because apparently she needs to see her parents dead, like gruesomely murdered and dead. Clearly a threat of some kind. Yeah. She handles it fairly well, though. She takes some of them to Jillian and accuses Jillian of of having something to do with it. 
at the very least, if Jillian didn't send her the photographs, Knox did, and she's the one who brought Knox around. But Jillian has her priorities, and instead of caring about photos of her dead parents, she asks if she's going to give the book to the vampire. Something has, like, gotten into Jillian's head. I mean, some Peter Knox, but... (sighs) What? Or maybe it was just poor writing, how you go from dead parents to, what about the book? Yeah, I don't know. It, it felt like it came out of nowhere because she literally just stopped and said, are you going to give the book to the vampire? When yeah. Diana has literally just shown her photographs of her murdered parents that had been delivered to her. <laughs> like if Jillian had ever been her friend, there should have been a different reaction there. It almost makes me wonder if Knox has somehow brainwashed her. Maybe. Like, we know he's been manipulating her, but maybe he has stepped it up from just talking to magically manipulating her. Yeah, I don't know. It was infuriating. Yes. Yes, it was. And, I don't know, I don't under Like, Jillian still seems not... I don't know if angry is the word, but, like, she doesn't understand why Diana would spend time trust a vampire more than she would trust a witch. But, like, Somebody just sent her threatening ritual death photographs. Mm-hmm. Like, what? why wouldn't she trust anyone else right? other than the people who have done this to her? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Jillian is just bitter, I think. Yeah. But, ugh. Yeah. But because Jillian did decide she didn't have priorities, she spurs Diana to go back to the library. Diana's going to try and call the book back up. And... Sean already tells her, you know, people have been looking for this book all week. You're the last one who called it out, and it's been missing since then. And, of course, Peter Knox and his entourage of witches have shown up to watch Diana get the book so they can steal it. Stupid Knox. And then the book doesn't come. Well, I don't even, I mean, Sean doesn't even get a chance to try. He just says, I'll look, but it's not there. And then Peter shows up and injures Sean. No, Sean goes and looks. Did he? Yeah, he did. He walked away and looked, and then Knox showed up, and because Knox says something like, we'll wait together, shall we? Oh, that's right. And then when Sean comes back without it, Peter says, ask him to look again, Diana. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Smarmy Peter Knox. I just, I think I hate his face so much that his words don't stick with my head. That's fair. Um, So yeah, the book doesn't show up this time. And... Knox hurts, threatens, does something to Sean, which Diana then uh, freaks out. As she should. As she should. And we get the first real look into Diana's real power. Yeah, she she causes this, this terrible, fierce wind to pop up that just <laughs> knocks Peter Knox on his ass. Which is pretty fantastic until Diana panics and can't stop what's happening. Yeah, and if she can't control it, and it's affecting her and the books, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. And can't hurt the books. Cannot hurt the books. And uh, Matthew is close enough by that he understands that there's something happening that has to do with Diana, and so he runs into the library to help, and he gets to her by crawling along the floor to fight the wind and grabs her hand and pulls her to him and says, I've got you, you're safe and the world collectively sighed. Yes. I don't know if I should mention this, but this is the first time that we see Matthew, like, specifically grab her butt. And it is not the last time. 
he has an obsession. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. I was so focused on, oh, it's so sweet. He's got her. She's safe. You know, that that's all that I was on. I just think it's interesting because I feel like any any other person or whatever in the scene would have sort of wrapped their arm around her waist. No, he goes right in for the butt. Nice. Gotta have some respect for that. Yeah. And it is a nice scene, though. It You're is right. a nice scene. And Diana does calm down once Matthew's there. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Diana's rooms where Diana is mm-hmm. sleeping and Matthew is packing her suitcase, which bothers me for some reason. Yes. Like, no, that bothers me so much. If somebody ever did that to me, I would never look at them ever again. Right? Like, don't go through my shit. Let me yeah. do it. Some more vampire possessiveness. Yeah, I guess that's what's happening. Uh, Marcus is also there, and he is inexplicably being the voice of reason towards Matthew right now. <laughs> I do like this scene with, with Marcus, because it, like I've, I think I've mentioned this before, how I they I think they have a good balance with Marcus, with him being kind of younger than the other vampires and a bit more fun. But also, you know, he is like 400 years old, so it is okay that he can sometimes be mature right. and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, so Matthew is hellbent on going to find Peter Knox and to put him in his place. And Marcus is telling him, absolutely not. You will start a war if you do this. And uh, Matthew is insistent that he has to protect Diana. And I think Marcus's line, it's it's a great line. I think he says, you can still protect her without causing a shitstorm. Yeah. Is that what he says? Yeah. Which I love. I love the use of that word because it's exactly what you're talking about. Marcus is young. But he's also reasonable. Yeah. Um, So the writing for his character there was absolutely impeccable. So Matthew finally backs down, recognizes, okay, I'm not going to do this, but fine, I will take Diana somewhere. And he says he's going to take her home to France to set tour, which Marcus is still kind of super not down with, but we don't spend a lot of time on that. Diana wakes up. We find out she doesn't even know which one is. Uh, Matthew tells us that no witch has summoned it in centuries, so we kind of begin to see this is a really big deal that she was able Mm -hmm. to do this. And then he convinces her to go with him. Yeah. Not to Madison, but to France. I wish we got a little bit more of Diana's, I guess, thought process or something in, in scenes like this, because it seems like Matthew's being really, uh manipulative and like you will do what i say Mm -hmm. but i feel like in the book because we got her thoughts she was very much like you know i haven't paid attention to this world all my life i have no idea what's going on matthew probably does know better Mm -hmm. and i and like it's not about her giving in it was about her logically coming to the conclusion that matthew probably has a point right and that was why she went with him or let him take the lead on a lot of things yeah I think they tried to give us a little bit of that in the show because he specifically was like, well, they'll find you in Madison. You know, they know about that. Nobody's going to touch you if you're on vampire land. So he was trying to give her the reasonable argument for her to acknowledge that that's where she should go. Yeah. It was just done very, very quickly. True. Um, they tried is what I'm they saying. Tried. And then they have a really nice kiss. Finally, an actual, yes. real, consensual, reciprocated kiss. It's really good. Um, I like the song that plays. It's Go Your Own Way mm-hmm. by Lissy, a uh, cover of Fleetwood Mac, which mm, I'll talk about that later, actually. And 
it's just a really good kiss. I can only I can't even really describe why, but it is like in one of like my top five on screen kisses. I think it's so good for me because they've been building it up so so much. I mean, I it happens quickly because this is episode three, and usually you wouldn't see the two main characters kiss for like three seasons, let alone three episodes. You know, but they've been hinting at it since mm-hmm. the first time they laid eyes on each other. And we've gotten the wrist kiss. We've gotten, you know, her trying to kiss him and him backing off. We've gotten him realizing how protective and possessive he is over her, you know. And so we've gotten all of this stuff from them individually. And now they finally come together. And the way they've been looking at each other, especially this whole episode, all you've wanted is for them to kiss each other. And so when they finally do, it's just like fireworks. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's good. I will say the first line of the like song that you hear is loving you isn't the right thing to do, mm-hmm. which just like the previous song this episode is incredibly literal and on the nose. They did, even with the song, it's a good song, but it yeah. is definitely a little bit literal i i kind of wish that they were more subtle with their musical choices but i really like that they are using popular music to like underscore what's happening on screen it was just a good scene Mm -hmm. i like it a lot yeah and then we get that wonderful final shot of her agreeing to go with him and as they're walking towards the car he reaches for her hand and we zoom in on them holding hands and then it fades to black yeah it's so good so good we're definitely seeing the start of something that is going to be wonderful. Yeah. And I like, I have this in our favorite section, which is next. So I'm just going to go on about it right now. But I love that the last shot is them holding hands like, like a team. Because I feel like in the, in the books going forward, that's sort of what the story is. Mm-hmm. The two of them together figuring everything out. And I just like how that sort of sets them up as, you know, despite all their differences and everything, this is going to be us together. Yeah, as long as they're together, they're going to be okay. Yeah. Yep. I think the most of my favorites have to do with Diana and Matthew together as well. And I, I think that you are exactly right in that it's because it shows them building up towards being that team. Mm-hmm. Diana has an obvious delight in Matthew. I swear, every her whole body smiles every time she's around him, starting in yes. this episode. And that's such a far cry from the Diana we saw in the, in the premiere. Um, yeah you know and him realizing that he has to protect her and being there for her in the witch wind and and actually just telling her i've got you you're safe that just gives me warm fuzzies all over yes and and then just just other things that don't have to do with them that i love i i don't know why we talked about the peacock in matthew's yard i inexplicably love it i don't know why it's there (laughs) it makes no sense it has nothing to do with anything and i think that's why i love it it's the only like just i just read the these bits in the book so like in the book they talk about uh matthew's property having like wildlife on it and that how he sometimes hunts that wildlife so that's all i can think about with this peacock that he like puts them on his property so he can hunt them okay but he should never be hunting peacocks (laughs) like that's not a thing i know it's ridiculous but it's the only thing i can think so I don't know. All right. Well, let's head into our by the book slash spoilers section. So if you are a non-book reader and have not gone any further, please proceed at your own risk. It will not hurt our feelings if you turn us off. It's cool. We'll see you next week. 
Okay, so I can't believe Matthew called Philippe his stepfather. Oh Philippe my god! Kick his ass with a sword. Yes. Like what? It, it, but it's also really weird though because the voiceover in, the, in every episode calls him his father. So what is yeah. with the stepfather nonsense? <laughs> so, like Philippe's ghost probably heard that and from France and like, I, nope, 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 nope. I don't know why that bothered me so much. But Philippe would never stare, stand for that nonsense. Right. Stepfather. Stepfather. <sighs> Whatever. Matthew's like his favorite. He, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and then another thing that... I don't, I don't, we don't... Uh, obviously, this will come up a lot later. But when the show was first amping up to its premiere, I saw a lot of people online excited about Sarah and M and this on-screen representation of a lesbian witch couple that was, you know, played by these two great, gorgeous actresses. And it's just, it is a barrier gay situation. Like, don't both make it out. And I love them so much, and I want the show to change it, but, like, I don't want the show to change it. I, I could be completely wrong, but I think with the direction that they're moving in, I feel like it will probably still happen, but I think it'll happen much differently. I hope so. Because, like, it's even an off-screen death in the books. Yeah. Yeah, and it's completely mundane in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I feel like they can't do that in the show with as involved as M is in everything that's going on, even from the beginning. I don't know. It would just be really weird if they kept that the same. I just love her so much, and I don't want her to die. That's true, but if she didn't die, we wouldn't get those great scenes of Philippe and M together in the third book. I guess. And those are pretty great. They are. It's, and I just, I feel like I want to spoil this for people so they don't get attached because a lot of people were really into it. Yeah. "Mm." Oh yeah, no, people are going to be really upset about that. I was really upset about it in the book the first time I I read it. Like I was shocked. Yeah. But because it's off screen and you just see people like kind of referring to it, I was like, wait, what? and this was before the third book was out where you do get a bit more information about it yeah but i was so upset Mm -hmm. anyways i guess that's more of a discussion for season two it's okay to bring it up now though fucking Knox. (laughs) (laughs) yeah um the the thing that i missed the most in this episode actually there were two things in this in this episode that i missed that we got in the book that we didn't get in the show one was vampire yoga like, I understand why it's not there. It's a silly thing. It's kind of a throwaway thing. But I feel like it's important because it does show a counterbalance to all of the creature bigotry that has been set up so powerfully in the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was in the book, too, obviously. And that's why the vampire yoga was such a big deal um, when Diana told Sarah about it. But by giving us Matthew's Lodge and not having the yoga there, like, it didn't really make sense to me like the whole reason he took her to the house in the first place in the book was to take her to yoga and to be around all of these creatures to show her that there's a different way and i missed that yes i agree i i do think it would have been ridiculous on screen to have matthew (laughs) doing yoga okay that that is a fair point especially since there were descriptions of vampires and witches doing yoga that would look absolutely ridiculous on screen but more than that, I do think that they're building up all this tension between the creatures. And from a story point of view, 
I can see where they wouldn't have wanted to undercut that tension. Okay, that's also fair. Because they're building it up way more than it was in the books. Like, even saying that demons can't hang out together, which makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But, like, that's... It. So I, I can see where they wouldn't want to then be like, oh, except for these people. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes a little bit of sense. I'm sorry that we don't get to see Matthew in yoga pants, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wish we had gotten... Th there was a nod to it in the show um is where diana was researching matthew because that's when she starts to recognize um he does research on wolves and so then she starts to recognize the the patterns of wolf hunting and predatoriness and vampire hunting and predatoriness and so she's able to equate the two and she uses some of that when she's trying to figure out what to feed him mm -hmm. and so in the in the show we got her reading a web page the feeding habits of wolves but then she goes and talks to marcus about what to feed him and so it, yeah. it wasn't done as well on the show as it was in the book i thought and I, I wish we had gotten a little bit more of that i wish we'd gotten a little bit more of them spending time together in general mm -hmm. because like i i don't mind a quick on-screen romance considering how much of television is the opposite which is like just as unrealistic when you have to wait five years for them to even maybe kind of sort of kiss. Right. Like, so it, it doesn't really bother me, but I do wish we'd gotten a little bit more of them. Bait, not doing yoga, but that type of thing, just hanging out together. Yeah. Because they also went for breakfast a lot and, you know, just talked more. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to do with the scene in the lodge. Was yeah. Give us all of that at one time. Yeah. And with the scene in the lodge and the dinner, like, that combines the conversations that they have in the book. That's, like, four different times of them spending time together right. covered in these two. Yeah, they definitely had to truncate it. Which I, I get because they only had eight episodes and it's a very long book and that sort of thing. I just wish we'd gotten a little bit more of them getting to know each other. Although, like I mentioned at the beginning, we don't know how much time has passed between the end of episode two and the beginning of episode three. So we can headcanon that they hung out a bit. See, I don't think that so, though, because it, it read very much like he immediately went to the library to find her because he had just, you know, at the end of the last yeah. episode, he had just figured out he needed to protect her and he left Hamish's. And so this one, he's rolling up to the library to find her. I agree with you. I was trying to make myself feel better. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't help <laughs> with that, did I? It's fine. <laughs> but I really liked this episode, and I'm happy that I will. In when I was reading the book, this is the bit of the book where I was really like, oh, okay, this is the plot. Mm -hmm. And I really like it. Because I guess on the flip side of what I was just saying, all that long hanging out was a bit slow in the book. Yeah. So I'm glad we're, we're at my favorite bits. Good. It was definitely, I mean, each episode is getting better as we move forward. Mm -hmm. And each episode brings in more of an element of, like, suspense and conflict. And it's, we've got nowhere to go but up, and it's pretty great. Yes. I think that's it. I think that's it. All right. So we'd love to know what you think of Matthew and Diana so far. Use hashtag DesireMadeReal to join our conversation on Twitter. I'm Caitlin, and you can find my other show at acommandofherown.com or find me on Twitter at inferiorcaitlin. 
And I am Mandy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at eloquentgushing. Or you can shout out directly to me on Twitter at Mandy Kay. Join us next week as we talk about episode four, where we will meet Matthew's mother. Until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning. 